so good evening. So on Saturday, Pat gave us a beautiful talk, a look, taught us how to look at the energies, not as enemies, but as limbic lovers. I'm going to use that one. Taught us to ask ourselves the question, is there anything you're not willing to accept? It was a great talk, right? On Sunday, Tara invited us to examine the ways we judge our prodigal selves, our prodigal situations as intolerable, unacceptable, and unlovable. And she invited us to balance that judgment the wings of compassion, which is not only our birthright, but it is the gateway that leads to true happiness. And last night, Eric reminded us in his uniquely elegant way that resistance is suffering. That when resistance ends, suffering ends. So tonight I have the great task of offering you another tool for your practice. A tool that I hope you'll be able to use right away in this day five of your retreat. And my hope is that at the end of the evening you'll understand just two things. The difference between unwise effort and wise effort, or ardency, and how to practice wise effort from right where you are. And since Eric established last night pretty well, I think that it's likely you won't remember much of what we say. Let me just take a moment to to say what I hope by the time you leave this retreat you will feel and that is encouraged your practice has been a real true gift to me and I want to thank you for that it's not easy to do what you're doing Aldous Huxley said it this way the sum of evil would be much diminished if men could only learn to do what you're doing here this week, to sit quietly in a room. Each of your interviews with me, in some way or another, has reminded me of why I chose this path. And I will be deeply grateful to you for letting me sit in on your stories and in your lives. I haven't told you this yet, but I will be leaving early on Thursday morning. Um, sorry about that. I have a 22-year-old graduating college. So I get the privilege of seeing her walk across the stage and get her bachelor's degree, and I get the privilege of having the, the bills stop coming. <laughs> but I will hold you in my heart and your journeys in my heart for a long, long time. So I've been practicing mindfulness for a while, and in, in just the last few years, I've really come to understand the difference that wise effort makes, the energy that it saves, and the space that it frees up in my life, and the time it frees up in my practice. And so I hope that something in the few words that I offer you tonight 
will resonate with your heart and encourage you that no matter where you are right now, however lousy a meditation practice you think you have, that wise effort is not about working hard. Wise effort is about working smart. So listen to the Buddha's words when describing how he gained enlightenment. Through heedful effort have I won enlightenment. Through effort have I won the insurpassable security from samsaric toil. Now most of us found our way into this practice because we tried other things to escape what the Buddha called the samsaric toil. Habitual patterns hooked all of us in some way or another with the promise of everlasting happiness, and joy, peace, you know, love, and the promise of not getting what we don't want, you know, the grief, the sorrow, the loneliness. Before we found the meditation practice, we all had our little strategies of distancing or distracting ourselves from what made us miserable. And we're still working at it. For some, it was sex, drugs, alcohol. Food was a favorite for others. TV, sports, sorry, Pat. <laughs> Facebook. Something, anything to get distance from what distracts us or what bores us or what pains us in our lives. Author Prince says this about distractions. It's not that worldly happiness and beauty are non-existent. It's not even that they're sinful or even worthless. It's just that they are flawed in, by their transience and their liability to change into suffering and ugliness. But at some point, all of us realize that those strategies that we used, however expensive they were, however popular or faddish they were, however effective they were in the short run, at some point we realized that ultimately they were ineffective. And so here we are, continuing our quest for happiness. But just because we found this path doesn't mean that it's not challenging at times because hardwired within our nature is the impulse to contract, right? To shut down, to close off when pain or discomfort arises. That is the limbic system loving us. So it's not easy to retrain ourselves to open reflexively Right? to investigate what's arising, especially when it's painful. And in fact, at times it seems downright impossible to do that. But what makes it even more challenging is that everything we've ever learned tells us that if we want to get good at something, really good at it, You've got to work at it. And that you've got to apply 
effort. And as Westerners, particularly Americans, when we hear the word effort, right away we associate that with words like slog, toil, drudgery, labor. On the farm where I grew up in Hazen, Arkansas, my father, who was a Baptist deacon, would quote his favorite Bible verse every Saturday morning when he woke us 13 kids up at sunrise. In a loud, booming voice, he would say, work while it's day. Get up. For when night cometh, no man can work. When I told my dad that actually day meant life and that night meant death, he didn't appreciate it and I got a lifetime's worth work of slopping the hogs. So I learned to keep my mouth shut. But he wasn't trying to be mean. He wasn't trying to be harsh. He was just doing what his father had done and He was just making the association that the entire world makes, you know, which is that everybody appreciates hard work and everybody associates hard work, you know, with a nobility, with a virtue. Working hard makes you respectable. And so I worked hard. In fact, I'm a little embarrassed (laughs) to admit that I was well into my 30s when I realized for the first time that there was any other way to do anything in my life. I worked extra hard at everything I did. In school in Arkansas in the 1970s when the schools integrated and blacks were not welcome. I was telling the teachers in the lounge earlier on I got beaten to a pulp first day, but I sat in the front row. At work, I wasn't satisfied until I was deemed exceptional. When it came to managing money, I always had a secret stash, always. I read every parenting book I could get my hands on because I didn't want my kid to suffer the way I had suffered. Working hard was the only currency I had to exchange for love. And I'd been doing it my entire life. So I was in my early 30s, and I was just starting to try my hand at writing seriously. So I went to my godson's uh, school auction fundraiser kind of thing. And by a stroke of luck, I won a chance to have something edited, you know, by a pretty talented writer. When we met and I asked her about her writing process, she told me that her very best work was produced not in those times when she was working really hard, but when she learned to get out of the way. Now, I had ears, so I heard what she said. The Buddha calls this kind of hearing Sutta Mayapana, wisdom that's learned or borrowed from what we've heard, hence the word sutta. And on some level, I understood what she meant, learning to get out of the way. I understood it 
on an intellectual level. The Buddha calls this kind of learning, this level of insight, citta mayapana, wisdom understood on an intellectual level where you can see it and it makes sense to you, but you don't yet have any direct experience with it. So that was me. I had absolutely no idea, zero direct experience with learning to get out of the way. Bhavana Mayapana is this direct experience the Buddha taught. So doing nothing by letting go, or rather letting be, was for me like jumping out of an airplane 35,000 feet up with no parachute. It was just not going to happen. But wanting to be a decent rider, I looked into it. That's the truth of what motivated me. Well, I was fascinated to discover that this concept of learning to get out of the way actually had a name. Positive psychologists had actually described what artists are experiencing in those moments of breakthrough. It's a process known as flow. You heard it? <laughs> of course which they say is what happens when, when the ego falls away. Like time flies, right? Every action, every movement, every thought follows previously from the next one, seamlessly, smoothly, you know, like playing jazz or a game of chess. Every part of your being is involved in what you're doing, and no part of you is left out. Well, as it turns out, I wasn't the only one fascinated by this flow phenomenon. In fact, a whole ton had been written about it. So in my research, I came across an article called The Art of Effortless Effort, in which the author asked a question that gets our Western minds a step closer to the Buddha's doctrine of wise effort. He asked, is it possible to achieve results in life without working really hard? Listen to what he says. Western culture covets hard work, and the harder it is, the more we seem to appreciate it. If we find we aren't achieving the results we want, we try harder. And if that doesn't work, we try even harder. It's almost as though we think if there isn't struggle or sacrifice involved, the work isn't worthwhile. However, the most fundamental functions of life are so effortless they don't even require thought. Breathing, sleeping, eating, drinking, cell replication, heart rate, body temperature, oxygen exchange, digestion, etc., etc. All these things we literally cannot live without yet. When was the last time you struggled to do any one of them? By asking the question this way, the author is not disagreeing that some effort is required. Clearly, without the effort that the heart exerts, we would not live. Right? But he begins to question the, the struggle, whether struggle and sacrifice is the kind of effort that's required to experience flow. In asking the question this way, he's sort of teeing up a question that the Buddha 
had already answered 2,600 years ago. Essentially, what is the difference between effort as a function of struggle and sacrifice and labor, the kind of effort that my father wanted to instill in us as kids, and effort as a function of flow or learning to get out of the way? Now, I didn't have the answer to this question when I asked it in my early 30s. But the question itself loosened or unhinged something in my mind. And I knew the question was a game changer. Like I said, I'd worked hard to leave Arkansas and a lot of the trauma that I experienced there. I'd worked hard to put myself through college. I worked three jobs. I worked hard to carve out a decent career. I got married, I mean murdered, I mean married. <laughs> to a wonderful man. I had a kid, everything to fulfill the American dream. Working hard was all I knew. And yet, I was still in a tremendous amount of pain. I was lonely. I was insecure. I was grasping and clinging and self-loathing. Essentially, I was still in poverty mind. In fact, it got so bad that one day I drove my car into a garage and I turned on the ignition and I sat there waiting for the fumes to take my citizenship card from planet Earth. I mean, I was done. I was finished. I had no more in me to give. I was completely expired. And I sat there it was a dark time in my life, and I was in a very, very dark place. But I made it out of that garage alive, thank goodness. And it wasn't easy, but it was an effort. It was wisdom, doing what effort alone could not do. Wisdom was the wise effort guiding me to the doorway of letting go or letting be. Over the next few years of healing, I asked myself one question more than any other. What am I doing wrong? I mean, no one had applied more effort than I had applied in my life. But something still wasn't adding up. That what am I doing wrong question is what led me to this path and where I became intent, committed to understanding what the Buddha meant by unremitting wise effort. And like you, when I first started going to retreats, I tried to bargain with my liberation, too. Anybody? <laughs> I mean, I, I asked questions like, you know, should I relax and take it easy? You know, a little qigong here, a little yoga there, breath here, breath there. And do I have to go to every sitting? I mean, is really walking meditation about anything? Like, do they really do that so that they can meet in the, you know, in the teacher's lounge to give themselves a break? <laughs> I ask that question. Don't tell me you haven't thought that. <laughs> the Buddha spoke of nirvana, the place of unbe unbeing, unbecome, right? Unconfounded. Un uncompounded. He had to explain 
the exact amount of effort that he applied to establish himself in that place. I mean, it was real questions. Now, for some of you, I saw on the first night, a lot of you raised your hands. You've been on many, many retreats. For some of you, this, these may seem like, you know, duh kind of questions. But they're really, really important questions on many levels, from the global to, to the personal. If you look very closely, you'll see that unwise effort has left a trail of destruction that humans can trace back to everywhere you look, everywhere we have been. In fact, one telltale sign that unwise effort has been at any crime scene, that unwise effort is being applied in anything you do is the following. Unwise effort always ignores feedback, always. You don't have to go far to see how human effort has ignored feedback globally because the evidence is everywhere from the rainforests that are disappearing at an alarming rate, mind you, to the melting ice caps, to the rising sea levels. You'd have to be blind to not see that our precious planet is suffering from a cancer of man-made effort and in, is in desperate need of palliative care at this point. Eknath Iswaran writes this, all the major accomplishments of our civilization, the development of the machine, the conquest of disease, the triumph of technology stem from creative thought. Moreover, less laudable feats, the poisoning of the environment, the production of weapons powerful enough to destroy all life, also can be traced to creative thought. So long as the mind is not under control of wise effort, the Buddha says, destructive thoughts cannot be kept out. The inertial drift of millions of such minds, not evil, but simply uncontrolled, can take the world to a precipice. So planetarily, we're in trouble. An unwise human effort got us here. Wise effort, however, wisdom would have us abide contemplating the Earth's body in the same way we would abide contemplating the human body, as the Buddha expounded in the Satipatthana Sutta. It needs food, the body needs sunshine and fresh water, tenderness, and it needs care. The Buddha, in this very body, six feet in length, with its sense impressions, its thoughts and ideas, are the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way that leads to the cessation of the world. So, unwise effort ignores feedback on a global level. But unwise effort also ignores feedback on a personal level. Just since you've been here this week, how many times have you tried to white-knuckle your meditation practice into submission? Be honest. You sit on a cushion, full lotus. Within five minutes, your legs go numb. <laughs> you say to yourself, I should sit in a chair.
But instead of sitting in a chair and practicing meditation, you sit on the cushion, right? You push harder, harder, more, more, faster, faster, right? So now, instead of optimizing the time you took off from work, got your bills paid up, you put a few trays of baked ziti in the freezer so your partners wouldn't starve, right? You got everything squared away to come to Pearl Stone. You're sitting so that you can catch your 12 noon train to Nirvana by Friday, so that you can get back to work on Monday, right? But be honest, how many of you, show of hands, what happens at Pearl Stone stays, it happens, stays here, we won't tell. How many of you have wrestled this week needlessly with what you should be doing, how you should be meditating, how you should be walking, as opposed to just allowing yourself to be where you are? Come on, let's see it. Look around so you know you're not alone. Why do we do this? To ourselves. I found the coolest joke the other day. You want to hear it? Okay. So, three Buddhist monks decided to practice meditation together. They sat by the side of a lake and closed their eyes in concentration. Then suddenly, the first monk stood up and said, I forgot my mat. So he stepped miraculously onto the water in front of him and walked across the lake to his hut on the other side. When he returned, the second monk stood up and said, I forgot to put my underwear out to dry. So he got up and he walked across the water and returned the other way, same way. So the third monk watched the first two carefully in what he decided must be the test of his own abilities. Is your meditation training so superior to mine? I can match any feat that you two can perform, he declared loudly, and he rushed to the water's edge to cross the lake. But promptly he fell deep into the water. Undeterred, the monk climbed out of the water and he tried again, only to sink back into the water. Yet again, he climbed out, and yet again, he tried, and yet again, he fell into the deep water, over and over and over. Finally, after watching this go on for some time, the first monk turned to the second monk, and he says, do you think we should tell him where the stones are? <laughs> You know? So we've been taught really, really well that effort means struggle or sacrifice or, or toil and that it's the only way to accomplish anything. Even when the price of our accomplishment, the price of our progress, of our effort, is really, really high. So what then is wise effort. If unwise effort ignores feedback, wise effort contemplates the interconnectedness of all phenomena and uses wisdom to do the heavy lifting. Wise effort uses wisdom to do the heavy lifting. The Buddha spoke of wise effort as the application of effort to what's called the four great endeavors. I like to use the method I called PACE, P-A-C-E. The first great endeavor in the application of wise effort is prevention preventing the arising of unwholesome states in the first place. It's kind of like taking your car to the dealer 
right, to have the, the maintenance checks routinely so that problems don't arise in the future. Throughout the suttas, a common description of nibbana is the mind that's not entangled in what's called kalesas, or root defilements, greed, hatred, and delusion. So the mind states that may not be present in one moment may very well be present in the next moment if the conditions are ripe. So mindfulness practice, we practice it while it's day, when we're not feeling it, so that when these unwholesome states arise, right, we're mindful of them. Upandita once said to a group of interviewers, when you want to move a heavy wagon, better to pull it from the front than push it from behind. So we get to know our minds like a scientist gets to know her subjects in a laboratory. But how often do we ignore what we need in order to have a balanced and equanimous state of mind? We know, but how often do we ignore it? If sitting in a chair relieves the pain, allows your back to be erect, helps you pay attention and keeps you from falling asleep, the next time you go to a retreat, right, anywhere, tell them that Eric, Pat, Tara, and Jonathan gave you permission to sit in a chair. Law will sign the slips if you need slips. It's really not a problem. We don't have to make it a problem. The second great endeavor in the application of wise effort is to abandon the unwholesome states that have already arisen. So if we can't prevent unhelpful energies from arising, when they do arise, we can practice just abandoning them. So we notice what's arising, we respond with a curiosity, a loving kindness, and a friendliness, rather than beating up on ourselves for being caught or being hooked in the first place. When was the last time your check engine light came on in your car and you pulled out a hammer and beat the living daylights out of it to get it to go off. Anybody? <laughs> and yet, we do this to ourselves, right? We spend years and years in meditation and retreats and practice getting to know these unwholesome states, getting familiar with these unwholesome states, becoming masters at identifying when they're present, but then we beat up on ourselves because they're there in the first place. When the very response that we need is something sweet, a loving voice, a warm, open, friendly response. I like to say to myself, I've started to call myself Miss Gilkey lately. It helps me sort of to get into that sweet grandmother voice, you know, like it's, it's okay, sweetheart. You, you're, you're hungry or you're tired or you're sleepy. I'm here and, and I love you. So we do what we can to prevent the arising of, of unhelpful or unwholesome energies. But in those times when we can't, we can't get around them. You know, it's like we go to bed and we're fine, and then we wake up and they're just like on top of us, like a 600-pound gorilla just like jumping up and down on our chest. If we can't abandon them, we just let ourselves be aware of them and to the extent possible, open to them. 
And this may sound trivial. It may sound like something we know. But the Buddha called this a great endeavor for a reason. Because it's not easy abandoning our narratives. It's not easy abandoning our stories, right? Sometimes it's as if we'd rather go down with the ship than to let go of our rigid ideas and our formations and our narratives. I too started a a project called Mad Dharma in 2010. I started it because I had treated hundreds of people over the 20 years or so I've been practicing counseling who, like me, seem to be really addicted to suffering. Addicted to suffering. I mean, it was the only identity I knew at the time. I mean, I had tried to abandon these habits, these patterns, but trying to get me to abandon my addiction to my stories about my habitual patterns was harder than getting me to abandon the patterns themselves. Does does that make any sense? Because the the stories we tell ourselves about what's happening is what we believe on some deep level is what's going to keep us safe, you know? We cling to these stories and because on some level we, they've helped us dissociate enough to get enough distance from the pain in order, to, in order to bear it. To get enough distance from the loneliness or, or the grief, the void or the shame or whatever it is. So it's a great endeavor. It's a tall order. So it's practice training ourselves to see the anger, see the jealousy, see the emptiness, see the shame, you know, see the check, check light engines coming on, flashing on our Dharma dashboards, and putting the hammer down, abandoning the unwholesome energy, but putting the hammer down. The third great endeavor, so there's P for preventing the arising of unwholesome states, A, for abandoning the unwholesome states that have arisen, C, is for calling forth or arousing wholesome states that have not yet arisen. It's like the stretching that a runner might do in order to call forth or condition the muscles before he or she goes on a a long run. Or maybe the warm-up poses that you've been doing in the afternoon uh, with, your, with Jonathan in yoga to sort of condition the muscles in your body to prepare you for more challenging poses to come. But it could also be something like a prayer, you know, that inclines the heart toward God or inclines the heart toward love. So if we haven't been successful at preventing unhelpful energies from arising, and if we haven't been successful at abandoning those unhelpful energies once they've arisen, we can phone a friend. We can call forth, call forth those, those energies when, when those states sort of just pop up on our dashboard, like a flash of anger or jealousy or, or whatever. I mean, all of us have those experiences with anxiety or self-consciousness or maybe righteous indignation where that when it should have been present, we, you know, we had every right to be angry. But instead, we found ourselves standing in this sort of pure awareness, this pure energy of love and acceptance. This past Sunday before I came to the retreat, I was driving down to the farmer's market. And uh, it was a blissfully a beautiful day, like it was today, when out of nowhere, a ginormous SUV just plowed right into the back of me. You know, I had, a, I had insurance. I had every reason to, you know, pull out the ID and, you know, the insurance card and go through the the thing we do, 
But it was such a pretty day, you know? <laughs> and I was in such a pretty place. And so I remember in that moment, there was just a pause. I had a moment to call forth my guardian angels to sort of help keep me calm and level-headed throughout the ordeal. And, and you know, it was just that simple. I told her, you know, put your things away. We're fine. We were kids. We used prayer a lot. We would, before we went to bed at night, we'd kneel down and, you know, pray and call forth these wholesome states because we really believed that, you know, that praying would condition us to be better people. One of the prayers I remember praying a lot when I was a kid was create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. So you might look into what calls forth the awakening factors in your practice. I remember being on a long retreat once when I noticed that every day um, during the sit right before lunch, like clockwork, I would find a really good reason to do walking meditation in front of the dining hall. <laughs> so if this is your first retreat, you know, maybe you thought that it would be peaches and cream and really easy, but a lot of stuff, a lot of unwholesome stuff can come up. So every time my mind, you know, got worked up around lunchtime, I remember taking out, you know, my scalpel of, of investigation and just sit with desire, 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 desire. Just noticed it, right? And when I watched it long enough, I noticed that the nature of desire was pretty much like the nature of every other conditioned thought I had. It was fleeting, it was made out of the same ticky-tacky that all other thoughts and feelings and sensations are made of. So we call forth what stimulates or arouses these states. And the fourth and final great endeavor in the application of wise effort is E, to enable. So we do what we can to prevent the uh, arising of unwholesome states. And if we can't, we do what we can to abandon them when they have arisen. We call forth those, those wholesome states that have not yet arisen but that we want to stimulate. And then finally, we enable or we strengthen those wholesome states that have arisen. So how easy is it to focus on what's wrong with your life? What's wrong with your job, with your body, with your partner, with your situation, and, and overlook all that's right? I had an interesting experience in in Whole Foods uh, this past winter, I mean last week, um, that was a joke. So, <laughs> yeah. All right, must be time. So I was I was in Whole Foods and um, it was cold. It was chilly. The heat was off. And this middle-aged woman came up to the customer service counter and she was, she was not happy that they had turned off the heat. She was cold. So she gave the nice customer service lady a serious, serious tongue lashing. And the, the customer service was a young person. She was very sweet. She was very cordial to her. And I remember watching this you know, pretty traumatizing scene play out. And I remember thinking to myself, Imagine having enough money to shop at Whole Foods in the first place, okay? Where you can get the freshest vegetables and fruits, you know, this side of the Mississippi. When a few blocks down the street at a, at a homeless place called Shepherd's Table, where I've, I serve food on Sundays, a hundred or more people line up every day or for three meals a day. Do you know the place I'm talking about? Line up to eat busted eggs and wilted spinach and you know, whatever else they can get to, you know, to stay alive. Robert Bly once said, you know, every part of our personality that we do not love 
will become hostile to us. So it's, it's, it's actually good heart hygiene to practice, you know, remembering what's, what's good, what's right, what's working about your life. And if it's hard to do, if it's hard to practice, you know, feel free to even bribe those positive energies that are around. You can get them to stay around if you strengthen them, if you work at familiarizing yourself with them. And if you, you, maybe you have to put out some la-la cookies and milk to get them to stay. That's okay, whatever you have to do. But strengthen those, enforce them, enable them. So what, what I first began by you know, understanding this, the, this idea of flow, this sort of glide path to the highest form of art, what I sort of expanded through my understanding of effortless effort, I, I finished in, in understanding the Buddha's teaching of, of the four great endeavors. Now, I want to just end by saying, if that's what wise effort is, how do you start practicing it from where you are right now in day five of your retreat? If wise effort is like the summit of Mount Everest, base camp is not finishing a seven-day retreat or a 10-day retreat or a 30-day retreat. The starting place is the decision to climb and to keep climbing with curiosity and openness and friendliness. John Bingham, he said when he finished the marathon, after he had spent an entire life, you know, on the couch, eating potato chips, totally sedentary. He said, the miracle isn't that I finished. The miracle is that I had the courage to start. So in this great letting be, you know, we gain confidence. We gain confidence. Sometimes this experience of freedom and ease, you experience it in, in your meditation practice. You know, maybe you come to the meditation hall early in the morning before anyone else arrives. And sometimes it's tricky to experience it because we're so easily pulled back into the habit of, of thinking that it takes a, a masculine form of hard work, of laborious effort to learn to be fully present, right, to learn to stay. And so it can be challenging to give ourselves the sort of more feminine gift of kind companionship, of wisdom, and trusting that wisdom can lift what effort alone cannot. But part of the reason I think it's so challenging for us to understand this, this practice is because we like to call ourselves meditators. We like to call ourselves Buddhists or this or that, and yet we find it impossible to reinforce these identifications without feeling at some point or another assaulted by the selves that we create. In the same way, we enjoy the progress that we've made as human beings and all the trinkets and all the pleasures and all the stuff that comes with our progress. And yet it's also impossible to enjoy them without being assaulted and, and, and destroyed by the same objects of our pleasure that science and technology has provided us. Anytime we attach too strongly to any identification or work too hard at anything. 
we suffer. Because we're not allowing the wisdom of the Eightfold Path invariably to keep us mindful enough to see the hindrances as they creep in. So this balance between agency and receptivity, effort and flow can be a tricky balance to strike. So now that you understand what it is, that effort ignores feedback, that wise effort uses wisdom to do the heavy lifting, and the PACE method can help us remember the four great endeavors. How do you start practicing from right where you are in this moment? I want to leave you by saying you first have to be willing to accept that wise effort will not beam you up to some intergalactic samadhi realm. (laughs) It's not going to happen. What it will do It will enable you to show up for what's right here, right now, and make it workable. Wise effort teaches us that what is here and what is possible can be held at the same time in the same hand. It inclines us to accept that our meditation practice is absolutely lousy and keep working with it. We accept that when I sit, I fall asleep within two seconds and it's what I'm working with. When I sit, I have back pain, I have leg pain, I have neck pain, I have gas. It's what I'm working with. It's a willingness to train the mind to obey the conscious will, which the Buddha says is the only way to free the mind from its race-old urges and proddings. But this kind of training, the wise effort we need for this kind of training, Mahatma Gandhi once said, requires the patience of someone trying to empty the sea with a teacup. This method of training the mind in this way is what you're already doing. You're already doing it. My hope is that you'll keep going, that you'll keep meditating, that you'll keep practicing. Meditation, insight meditation particularly, because it will slowly, slowly. You may not notice it today, and you may not notice it even Friday at the closing, but at some point, if you keep at it, you'll notice it loosening, unhinging you know, your attachments to your stories about your suffering, makes your mind more soft and more pliable. And finally, your mind will come to rest in its native state, which is calm, peaceful, adaptable, and workable. So let's just sit for a moment. Remember, this body is a fragile clay pot. Make your mind a fortress to conquer Mara with a weapon of wisdom. Guard your conquest always. Remember, that this body will soon lie in the earth without life, without value, 
useless as a burned log. More than those who hate you, more than all your enemies, an undisciplined mind does greater harm. More than your mother, more than your father, more than all your family, a well-disciplined mind does greater good. May you continue your training in wise effort, not using the elbow grease of our grandfathers, but wisdom, mindfulness, loving kindness, acceptance, all of which carry the same universal name, love. May it be so. Thank you for your practice.